Good morning, church. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Metro Life Church, and we're going to dive into God's Word together this morning. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7, and as you do, I want to kind of ask some questions as we're gathered here today, and this is not necessarily a question where I'm asking for a show of hands, and it might make a little bit more sense as to why in just a moment, but I think that we're all familiar with the concept of parents wanting better for their children. Now, for some here, I know that when we start to talk about things with parents, it can be easy to get tripped up in your own experiences, especially if those are negative ones. But I think that's a fairly common thought, is that parents have a, a desire that their children experience better than they have. And, and I wonder how many of this morning kind of gather, and we know that, we, we know that concept, and if you're here and you're a parent, you, you may even have that, that reality in your own home where you're, you're trying to do things to help your children not have some of the, maybe the hurts or the failures that you've experienced in life, or, or you have these moments where it's like, you know, I've seen that attitude before, and I know what it leads to, and let me help you with that, or, or you have this thing of, I look back on my life and I have these regrets and you're trying to help train uh, others in, in those regrets so that they don't have to experience them for themselves. I think it's a natural thing to realize that parents want good for their children. I think that there's been a day in the church where <clears throat> some have come to the church because the desire is, well, I want my kids to go to church so that they have it better than I did. I know on one side of my own family, that's a part of our family's testimony, is that grandparents were sending one of my parents to church so that they would experience better than what they did. My grandparents on one side didn't even go to church. They just sent my mom. And she went to church just because my grandfather, who was a very harsh man, wanted better for her. My, my Mima, she wanted better for her. And I wonder how many of our families have those types of stories where it's like, that seems like a distorted morality, doesn't it? Where maybe you're here today because you want, you want your children to be better. I don't know what your reasoning is, but I think it's natural for us to engage with this concept that parents most often want better for their children. If you're a young parent or you have uh, young ones in the home, maybe those who are under the age of five, it can be easy to kind of give in to temptations that Everything that we do today has to do with their college resume and their application, you know, 15 plus years away. And there's a world around us that, that kind of feeds into that and they're trying to like almost guilt you into better for your children and make you have this sense of want. And I wonder how many of us are here today, so that's one category of gathered here. I wonder how many of us are gathered here today and we're just tired. Tired of asking? You're here today because you think it's the right thing to do, but you're not going to pray for that thing that you gave up praying for one plus years ago. There's that situation going on in your life. There's that healing that you need. There's that relationship that's broken. There's that hurt going on in your own heart that you've been asking God to bring some clarity to, some relief to, some healing to. But you're just tired. And that Weariness has led to stop asking, stop praying, at least for that specific thing, because it seems like God's not really listening to that. And in the midst of that weariness, in the midst of that 
tiredness, I'd want to speak to that, and I'd want to tell you from God's word, based on what we're going to see today, don't give up on praying for that thing. Don't give up on praying. Don't give in to that lie. Bring your tired and weary self to Jesus and listen through his word how he wants to minister to you today. With that in mind, let's read together as we see in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 7 and read through verse 12. We're going to see that God is our Father who hears and responds to our prayer. What an outstanding truth to see today. Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would Show us your ways and your heart through your words today. Lord, where we are tired, may you bring both refreshing and strength to us. Where we have hurdles of hurt with our own families to work through as we work to understand you as a good father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and minister to hearts and minds. May we walk out of here engaged in the sense of purpose that you're calling us up to in this passage today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now perhaps your Bible does like what mine does and it breaks that verse 12 out into a different section under the header of something like the golden rule. Uh, That might help us to understand that in the text on the Sermon on the Mount, What this reference of the law and the prophets does is it actually closes out a bracket that that has been opened up elsewhere in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 where Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. And so that's where he begins to make this point about the practical application of the law and the prophets. Now we'll see later that that's really just a shorthand, so to speak, rhetorically for what Jesus is referring to that we have in our scripture today or on your app today. It's called the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, these things that are captured to tell us about God's ways, his heart toward us as his people, his choosing of his covenant people, the ways that he makes promises to his people that he will see through. And so throughout this section that that Jesus kind of opens and now closes with our passage today, we have this building effect that's happening in, in this section, and kind of Jesus has begun with the interpretation and the application of the law from Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 48. It's followed then by some instruction for the deeds of righteousness, that's in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, and then Jesus defines our relationship to possessions. We actually looked at some of those passages just a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 6. 
And now today in chapter 7, Jesus is beginning to reorient our relationship to one another. So we see how practical the gospel is in daily life. We see how, how it's something that is not just what we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings, but it's something that we live out of the good of every day of our lives. And yet, I asked those questions earlier about our understanding of our relationship to parents and child. And I asked the questions that I did about the weariness that can lead to us even stop praying for certain things that we actually need in our lives. How do we, how do we reconcile those things? How do we reconcile that temptation to, to stop praying, to see God as a decent father? over there, afar from my actual life circumstances. Well, I think what he reveals to us in his word today is a promise that rules our lives. It's a promise that rules our lives in a couple of practical ways. And so let's begin with the promise that he gives us. I draw attention to help us understand when I say there is a promise that we have because Chapter 7, verse 7 of the book of Matthew is a promise to us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. That's a promise. These are Jesus' own words to us as his people. And what we realize is that in Christ, what we receive from God is the promise of answered prayers. Now, this is not just a convenient way for us to close out the 21 days of prayer that we've been having. This is not just a wonderful way for us to look at uh, this passage in a new light, in, in light of this week of fasting that we are coming out of. This is actually a call to endurance in prayers as a church beyond the 21 days that we've just experienced together. This is a way for us to see that our prayers matter beyond these 21 days. This is helping us to understand a lifestyle of prayer that we're called to. And a regular going back to and making petitions of God. Because he's a good father. He actually wants that persistence. And that's not because that's some way that we have to measure up or do just enough that he finally says, fine, you pestilent child. I will finally answer that prayer just so you'll shut up about it. But isn't that temptation there for us to believe about our good God? And it's certainly there for me. But see, his, he's a good father that wants that persistence. and He wants that expectation in prayers. He wants us to realize that there are things that only he can do that we can't accomplish for ourselves. How many of us are here and have just enough life experience to realize that when we try to accomplish things for ourselves, what we end up doing is creating all new things to have to pray about. We get stuck in our own solutions. We get trapped by our trying to make our own way. And Jesus here is showing us his way for us. He's showing us that this persistence in prayer is not about our performance. It's all about his. On our behalf. Prayer is the great blessing that our finite nature gets to engage with his infinite nature that our temporary lives get to engage with the eternal that our impotence gets to meet his omnipotence 
our lack gets in touch through prayer with his supply. And our needs, they receive open access to his riches. Why don't we pray more, church? If that's what this brings us, why don't we pray more? So this scripture instructs us. It instructs us in how it is to pray. There are others that give frameworks for that as well. But let's be clear, church. We should ask persistently. We should ask persistently. Now, this is unnatural for us, isn't it? Some of us wouldn't ask to begin with, let alone persistently. We, We hesitate to ask for things that we need. I find this in my own life. I may need help with something. I may need more than just these two hands. I have trouble asking of my own children at times, let alone other people in the church. I don't mean that as some braggadocious thing. That's a confession, church. It's not natural for me to ask in the first place, let alone be persistent with it. But that's what God's word instructs us to do. His word instructs us to do what we left to ourselves would not naturally or normally do for ourselves. Ask so that you can receive. Isn't it kind Not just to know that we will receive, but that God hears our prayers. When we struggle, when we are weak, prayer encourages us. It instructs us in those moments. And so there's this threefold command. Ask so that we could receive. Seek so that we might find. Knock so that it might be opened to us. These are the imperative actions of a command. Ask and keep asking is the idea. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. That's a promise to us that we should ask persistently and we should also ask expectantly. Jesus tells us that when we pray, we are praying to our Father in heaven who hears our needs. And our heavenly Father is so much better than any earthly father. So much better it's difficult for us to even comprehend how much better he is so let's just take uh, these one at a time if we look at verses 9 and 10 there are two questions that are kind of asked with what seem like very obvious answers Jesus asks in verse 9 what father on earth would give his son a stone something that might look like bread but have no nutritional value and would probably break his teeth If his son were to ask him for bread, what natural father would give his son a stone? So if that's what natural fathers would do, how much more will our heavenly father do in supplying for our every need? Now, this is where it can be one of those things where it's like stone, bread, fish, serpent. How do we even understand this? Well, there's certainly a cultural context. The way that bread was stored at the time, the way that it was cooked, It was stored in a place that might look as if it were a stone. And so it's not this kind of bait and switch that he is saying. It's saying that a father is going to be intentional about what he chooses to give to his child. See, it's important for us just to read beyond these things and understand that what's being revealed to us here is not just a puzzle for us to unlock. It is the very heart of God being expressed for us. When God provides bread for us as his children, when we ask for it, he is intentional in the selection of that sustenance for us. He chooses rightly. 
He doesn't choose the stones. We, we read a couple of weeks ago in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, do not lead us into temptation. The world is filled with temptations that we face. Each one of our days, you may have faced temptations already this morning that seem insurmountable, and today is just the first day of the week. We face temptations. But what father on earth would give a stone instead of the bread that we ask for? That's the first of the, the questions. Well, the answer is no loving earthly father would consider doing that. No loving earthly father would consider doing that. Verse 10, Jesus says, what father would give his son a snake? Something that might resemble a fish, but could be very venomous. Now, in this region, there were something like 40 different types of snakes, and I believe it was something like 15 of them are venomous. Several of them will kill you within moments of being struck. So Jesus is speaking very directly to us. He's speaking directly into their context, but he's speaking directly to us today too. What would happen in these days is that they would be cooking the fish that had been caught and oft times a snake would come to warm itself by the fire and potentially even get into the boiling pot itself. Be so nearby that it could be easily reached for without, again, that intentionality of paying attention to what's going on, let alone handing it over and then seeing the devastating strike against a child. This goes beyond intentionality to say that there is a protection that God himself provides for us. Even in the midst of our prayer and our seeking and our asking and our knocking, in the midst of those moments, there is both provision and protection for us as his people. There is provision and there is protection for us as his people. I was meeting with someone earlier this week and as we were talking about something that she walked through just this last summer, it was a a major medical event and this is the first time I've had the opportunity to sit down with her and I just said, how are you feeling? This wasn't even what we were meeting about. I just said, how are you feeling? There's an obvious scar. And she brought me into what was going on in her prayer life. She said, I remember in the midst of praying for this, I was praying for a miracle. I was praying for healing. And I I wondered, why wouldn't God provide the healing? Why would I have to go through the surgery that was required? Why would it have to come about in the way that it did? And, And she said, I remember at one point I was praying. And as I was interacting with God, he began to speak back to me in those moments. What a wonderful example of how prayer is a two way conversation, not just a one way request. She'd been faithful to continue to make these requests and God said what does healing do what does healing do for you and she said well it it would reveal your power God but what else would healing do well it would it would show everybody that you're still alive and and there was kind of this back and forth and then she's finally oh and it would also reveal your glory God and she said in the midst of that moment She felt as if God spoke back to her, let's start with my glory. She said as she heard those words, as she's praying before the Lord, she felt her entire perspective shift on what she was walking through. She felt her entire perspective shift. Now praise God, she's doing well. Praise God, the, the heart surgery that she had is seeming to have effect. But maybe we should recognize, church, the greater miracle is that her perspective on what was going on in her life shifted because she had an encounter with the living God. 
he reprioritized her prayers. Why? So that she might be instructed to pray rightly, to begin with his glory in mind. Church, prayer is not just a petition. It can also be instruction. We're not called to just pray for his provision and his protection, but we are to listen with ears ready to hear from the one that we're crying out to. Of course, the answer is the same. If there was some sort of danger, if there was some sort of uh, provision that was different, no loving earthly father would consider giving a venomous or dangerous snake instead of fish to their child. But see, Jesus is using what might be considered a lesser to greater argument here. If even those who are not saved and living for my glory, if even those who are just going about their hell-bound ways would not give their child something different than what they requested, how much more would a perfect and good, loving, holy, righteous Father in heaven who loves you and made you for so much more not provide for you? Church, this should cause our faith to rise in how we pray. This shouldn't just come across as some correction of our perspective. What it should do is stir a sense of faith. God, give me the faith to pray in that way. And we recognize not only is he the object of our prayers, he is the source of the faith that we can pray in. We don't have to gin this up for ourselves, but when we think intentionally, when we see his word in the way that it instructs us, it actually stirs our faith. It brings us to a place of understanding the need, the great need that we have to pray. And we can expect him to do so much more. Notice that whatever is pretty general. Whatever you ask. Let me ask you this, church. How big are your prayers these days? How big are your prayers? Have you started asking for less because you have a lessened view of who God is? Hear the Savior calling you today. Hear God the Father calling you today. Hear the Holy Spirit ministering and empowering you today to ask great things of a great God. And let your faith be stirred to say, God, I don't know how you can do this but I know that you can. Pray with great expectations. Because he's our perfect heavenly father, we can ask trustingly, we can ask knowingly, and we will always and only get what is best for us and for his glory. Why is that? Because infinite love is the well from which all of God's gifts flow for his children. Infinite love. Infinite love. Well, how does this connect to this rule of life, as I've called it? The golden rule. Well, verse 12, perhaps if you're using the ESV as I am, it says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Many other Bible translations use the phrase, therefore, which when we see that word, what we need to look at it as is a summation and an instruction coming out of what we've just heard. 
Why is this there? What, what, how does it connect to what we just heard? Well, we can ask persistently. We can ask expectantly, knowing that we will find provision and knowing that we will find protection in our prayers. How does this make a difference in our lives? Well, let's begin with this. This is a reminder that those persistent, expectant, provision, protection prayers are a part of a selfless call to the Christian life. They are a part of a selfless call of the Christian life. Have you ever noticed that the Christian life is not here for your material, your worldly, your earthly gain? Have you ever noticed that the Christian life is not for your convenience? Maybe that's what's helping inform your prayers. I don't know. Have you ever noticed that the Christian life, no matter your stage or season of life, is a selfless life? So if you've been hearing what I've been saying up to this point and you're like, yeah, my faith is rising. I got some stuff to say to God. And it's all for you. You're praying wrong. The Christian life is a selfless life. And our prayers should not be selfish. They should be selfless. I should have done more vocal warm-ups to be ready for that line this morning. Goodness, the Christian life is a selfless life. How many of us in our relationships with other people, no matter our stage or season of life, how many of us would benefit from reminding this, being reminded of this on the daily? We are called to a selfless, not self-centered life. And the one who's instructing us isn't just instructing us through his words. He's about to instruct us through his example for us. By laying down his life so that we could learn how to lay ours down for others as well. I think about friendships that would benefit from this. I think about parent and child relationships that would benefit from this. I think about marriages in this church that would benefit from this. See, it's easy for us to say, yeah, the world would benefit from this. No, I mean Metro Life Church, y'all. The Lord is revealing some stuff about us that he wants to change for his glory. We are called to be a selfless church. Not a self-centered church, not a selfish church, selfless. The other night after the prayer meeting, I had to drop a vehicle off at the mechanic, as is my way. And I walked from the mechanic's house home, just a couple miles, no big deal. Took that time to pray and realized it's going to be about 10-15 when I get home and Duncan the Wonder Pup is going to have some expectations of my arrival for his nightly walk. I hope the live stream's not at home because if you heard me say that, he's going bonkers right now. (laughs) Duncan needed a walk and so I called Ella and I was like, hey babe, I'm, I'm, 
I'm heading home. Do you mind just harnessing Duncan up and then meeting me in the neighborhood and we'll walk home together? I did not realize in that request that Ella had never been out in our neighborhood at night. Now, first of all, I'm fine with that. Uh, I just didn't think anything of it. And so she was like, Dad, our neighborhood is terrifying at night. And she turned around and somebody had like etched a, tree, a face in the tree and a car was driving up. And she's like, like that? You see that face too, right? And I, y'all, it was frightening. I've, I've walked by that tree a lot and I had never really noticed it. And I was like, okay, this makes sense. I apologize. I said, babe, I was not trying to put you in the position of realizing how frightening the shadows in our neighborhood can be at night. I was just being selfish so I didn't have to walk back and forth again when I got home. And I admitted that to her. And we laughed and it was fine. It, you know, even me sharing this today is fine. But, but how often do we live that kind of selfish life where we're thinking about, like we're thinking three steps ahead for us and not for others. We're very strategic when it comes to me. And Jesus turns selfishness on its head for the glory of God. He says, you know, what's that thing you want? Do that for someone else. What's that thing you, you seek? Be that for someone else. What's the thing that you desire? Provide that for someone else. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He turns our prayers where we might be tempted to begin to pray these bold, expectant prayers completely selfishly. And he turns that on its head and it says, by the way, what I mean by this is for others' benefit. And then watch what happens in your life. Watch what happens in your life. So this golden rule, per se, is a biblical concept. Oftentimes in other religions, it might have been presented in a way that was a negative connotation. It's one of those things that leaders might have said, well, you should do this out of some self-sacrifice, out of some benefit to others so that you might, re might receive a reward because of the cost that it was to you. And what Christianity turns it on its head and it says, whatever you ask, even as comprehensive as that is, if you enjoy being loved, love others. If you want to receive things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. And let that inform the way that you pray. Do you see how this would have that radical, transforming effect on our relationships, no matter the season or stage of life that we're in? Are you here today and you have a strained relationship with someone? How might this inform you of what your afternoon is supposed to look like? Let's not wait until the next time you've got it on the calendar to get together. Let's start today living these things for his glory. Let's start today letting these be the way that our prayers are informed for others. So in other words, we start with what we want. No permission to withdraw into a world where we offend no one, but accomplish no positive good either. No, this actually becomes a very active world for us where we are actively engaged with the world around us. What would you like do, done with you? What would you really like? Then do that for others. Duplicate the quality of these things and the quantity. So it's not just whatever you ask, it's in everything. In everything, do that to them. 
In everything, make this a part of your petition. Start with what you want, but finish with what others would want. So we begin by looking inward, but then we move outward in our actions toward other people. We ask our Heavenly Father to allow us to live this rule of life in an authentic way. You know, when this church was founded, that was part of Danny's heart for it. Is that what we experience in this church, the way that this church ministers to the world around us, is by exemplifying what he called New Testament reality. That call to us hasn't changed today, and not because it came from Danny Jones, but became, because it came from God's own heart for us as his people. Let us minister to our own hearts, to those around us, living out of the good of this reality that we're called to in the New Testament as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Start with what we want, finish with what others would want, and then rejoice that that's what God wants for your life. Rejoice that that's what God wants for your life. We said it earlier, the phrase the law and the prophets is a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament. This is one of three references in Matthew's gospel. We mentioned it earlier in Matthew 5 that Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures. The second one is here today, the golden rule, capturing the heart of the scriptures for us. And then in Matthew 22, that loving God and loving your neighbors are the foundation of the scriptures. So the the golden rule actually captures both the moral standard and the spiritual intention that undergirds the whole of the New Testament. It's the framework that, that holds it all together, especially as it relates to how you and I as image bearers of God relate to one another. This is instruction for us. Our selfishness turned to selflessness. God, through your power, may it be so in your church. God, in your power, may it be so in the mission that you've called us to in this community. God, in your strength and might, may it be how it is that we are deployed throughout this region. And God, for your kingdom and your glory, may it be the way that we engage with the world around us. These verses, they speak powerfully to us, don't they, church? And part of the power is how practically they speak to us. I wonder if the Holy Spirit's not already beginning to reveal ways that our prayers have become self-centered. And what I don't want to do today is leave us in this tension that our own propensities and personality might be given to. Part of even the good of our created design is an image bearer. The ways that our our gifts may tempt us, the good gifts that God has given us, they come with strengths and weaknesses, don't they? 
I don't want to leave us in this tension of not being sure what to do with what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. Those ways that might be coming to mind of, I have been selfish in my prayers. I, I have been giving up and being persistent in prayer. I have been giving in to a lack of expectation. And, and you hear me talk about these things. And you say, I long for the faith that you're talking about. Guess what? I do too, church. There are big things ahead of us for, as a church. Too big for us to accomplish on our own. But they are nothing in the kingdom of God. Nothing he can't provide for. And church, I want to be one that, that leads by praying big prayers for my relationship with my wife, for my relationship with my children, for my home, for the generations to come from my home, for those that we are in community with in the church, for those that we get to serve alongside in the church, but more than that, for the church as it represents the glory and the body of Christ. So I find myself in this tension that we're talking about this morning. Ways that my own prayers have become convenient or attainable through my own strength. What a weak and weary prayer, church. I say that as a confession, not as an accusation. But perhaps you know exactly what I'm talking about. Perhaps you know exactly what I'm talking about because your expectations have been lowered by your circumstances or your experiences in this life. May this passage today stir us to fresh faith as we see Jesus in this passage. Not only is the one who's giving us this command, not only is the one who is, is telling us and instructing us how it is that we're to pray, but the one who sets an example for us through the way that he provided for the forgiveness of our sins, those ways that our thoughts don't measure up to his thoughts, those ways that we fall short in our thoughts or our actions of living up to the good that we were created for. Those transgressions, those, those boundary lines that we don't say, those boundaries have fallen for us in pleasant places, we attempt to cross them and crisscross them to try to confuse the will of God. The way that we transgress against his, the way that we trespass in ways that he hasn't called us to. No one ever prayed to the Father so persistently and expectantly as our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about the garden. That's certainly an example of it. I doubt any of us have ever prayed to the point of shedding of blood, let alone lived to the point of shedding of blood for other people. And yet Jesus did. But not just there. He never stopped talking to his Father. Throughout Scripture, what we see is this conversation going on, this declaration of trust in God as his Father. And he knew more than anybody else that God was a good Father. No one ever loved us like Jesus. Not did. No one ever loved us like Jesus does. Actively toward you and I today. thinking about this we have the communion elements here no son that asks for bread will be given a stone i wonder how much for us scriptures begin to light up in our mind about jesus being the bread of life so the 
The bread that we need is nourishment for our souls more than the filling of our stomachs, the place where the world has nothing more to offer us, the place where when we've been going to the world and we've been giving into the vices of the world, trying to fill the void that the world itself created, and we find it wanting and lacking for our spiritual nourishment, Jesus is there for us as the bread of life. We're invited to come to him. Perhaps you noticed that on the banners that are now out front. This invitation to come to him. Weak, weary ones. Come to him and know the ease of the yoke. The lightning of burden. Come in this place if you're tired and weary. Come in this place if you're sinful and weak. And find forgiveness and grace to be strengthened. Find rest for your weary soul. That's how we come together. But if you haven't noticed it yet, there's banners on the other side of that, those columns. When we come in here and we encounter the goodness of our Savior, we are commissioned to go as representatives of that kingdom. I was listening to a podcast this morning and it was an ambassador from a foreign nation. And man, there's some slick and schmarmy talk in that podcast he said nothing in a lot of words that's not what it looks like to be an ambassador of the kingdom of god it means to say something so deep with so few words It means to be a minister of reconciliation with the world around us. Why? Because of being reconciled through Jesus Christ to God, this good Father. So when Jesus encounters people, whether they were friend or foe, his love was a river toward them of compassion and mercy and grace in their time of need. And we're invited to come to him again and again And then over and over again, persistently, expectantly, bringing those same needs, bringing those same wants, bringing those same desires, the circumstances, asking and seeking and knocking to know what it is that living for his glory looks like. I was sharing with some of the Alive leaders before the service today and and counseling recently. This, This passage has been coming to life for me. It's from Psalm 55, 22, and I think it sets us up to respond today. It says this, very simply, it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. He will sustain you. You As a musician, I, I was sharing that the sustain of an instrument is like the holy grail of that instrument. It's, it's what makes it unique. When you advance in years in, in your musicianship and your craft, what begins to happen is you know your own playing style and how you need an instrument to respond to that. And the sustain becomes a premium part of what it is that you're looking for. It's what tells you not to go to the Sears and Roebuck catalog and look for your guitar anymore. 
So it tells you you're looking for someone who, who has the hands of a craftsman, who know how to allow that instrument to carry on. And yet here's where the danger is for us, church. If we stop here in our understanding of his sustaining nature, we may have a misconception about our good and loving God. See, when we think about God as the one who is able to sustain us, what it can actually sow the seeds of is disdain toward God. We begin to look at our circumstances and say, I'm going to grit it out because Jesus said I can. And rather than asking and seeking and knocking, what we do is we just try to hang on just long enough. But that's not all that sustain means. Yes, it means endurance, but it also means filling as in sustenance. He will sustain you by providing for your every need. Give us this day our daily bread. He will sustain you to endure. He will sustain you by filling you. And more than that, sustain also means to undergird, to lift up, to hold above the circumstances or the fray or the muck or the fire of this life. He will sustain you. Who else but God can do that kind of comprehensive work? We might try to accomplish it for one another and we might experience it for just a moment. And then what happens? We are completely zapped of our resources. But the love of Christ, the love of God, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is an ever-flowing river of His grace and His mercy and His power toward us as His people. He will sustain you. Look to Jesus for his love for sinners like me and you and understand the golden rule in real life and receive of his grace and mercy today.